Amen. I hope you continue to prayerfully consider giving to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering this December. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with what that is, it is our uh, yearly missions offering where we give to support the work of international missions uh, across uh, the world. And there's much good work going on among the nations, even in uh, very uh, volatile places, uh, just like we have seen. And uh, let me just say this, um, I hope that as the people of God, when we consider stories like this and consider situations like Syria, that we would speak into that situation as Christians and not as politicians. That we would see through gospel lenses, not through Republican and Democrat lenses. That we would be able to be burdened for these people because God is burdened for these people. And he is doing a work of gospel advance among peoples that we have been taught to hate and to disdain because of their evil and their hatred toward us. And so let's love as Christ loved. Let's give as Christ would call us to give so that many people could know his saving work. Amen? Amen. This morning, we're going to turn into our Bibles in uh, Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. looking at the first 14 verses of Exodus 32 today. As you make your way there, I'm going to pray one more time for the Lord to lead us as we open his word. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given us a record of who you are and what you've done. So Lord, as we open it now, would you teach us? Would you help us to see you more clearly? Would you help us to see how you have worked through the ages and ultimately through Christ to give us hope? Lord, that's our prayer. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, even though uh, you have not yet been able to wear your favorite ugly Christmas sweater so far this year, because of the weather, we are in the midst of the Christmas season. You know, I've always wondered when we say, it just doesn't feel like Christmas because it's not cold, what people in, near the equator think. You know, I mean, it's never cold there. And so I think sometimes we uh, maybe get uh, things out of alignment there. But yet, as we are in the midst of the Christmas season, along with that come all of the holiday greetings. Right? We get the Christmas cards in the mail, we, we see the messages, we, we hear all of the, the things that go on at our Christmas party, all the holiday greetings, happy holidays, joy to the world, may your Christmas be merry and bright. We even watch reruns of our favorite or not so favorite Christmas movies such as It's a Wonderful Life. Just think of all of those words and adjectives and terms. Merry, happy, joy, wonderful. And yet, I wonder just how happy, joyful, merry, and wonderful you truly find your life. I'm convinced that for many people, including professing Christians, and certainly for those in the broader culture, Christmas and life in general 
is far from merry, joyful, and wonderful. For many, life is more summed up as demanding, stressful, overwhelming, and maybe even for some, completely meaningless. Well, I am here this morning to tell you and to remind you and to remind me that if you are in Christ, if you know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, you have every reason to be joyful, to see life as truly wonderful, to be stunned and amazed, to be overwhelmed in a good way because of the grace of God. Christmas ought to be overwhelming, not in the sense that you typically feel. Christmas ought to be overwhelming in the sense that we are overwhelmed not by debt and credit cards and Christmas lists, but by the amazing grace and promises, provision of God in Christ Jesus. Let me just ask you a simple question, and I, and I think it's a question, and you could take it and, and re, reword it if you want, but I think it's a question that, that something I, I wrestle with, and I think it's a question that we would all do well to wrestle with, perhaps even a good question to discuss with friends and family over lunch. As you reflect upon the incarnation, and that's just simply a fancy way of saying Jesus coming to the world, God becoming flesh, as you reflect upon that fact, as you reflect upon the season of Advent and the coming of Christ into the world, how much of a sense of amazement and joy marks your life right now? Right now, as you sit here in this place, how many of you feel the sense of over? the sense of over, being overwhelmed by the beautiful grace and amazing work of God in Christ Jesus. How stunned are you right now by God's work in your life? Is it apparent to those around you that Jesus is your greatest treasure and joy? Those are three questions, not one question, but they're still helpful to, to, to at least think through. Because, I, you know, I think about Christmas season, and certainly I would say that, that this joy and this being overwhelmed by the sense of God's goodness and grace towards you is not just a seasonal thing. It's, it's something that ought to mark your life through eternity. Yet many of us are more Grinch-like than Who-like. Friends, by God's grace, my goal today is very simple. It is to point us, us, myself included, my goal is to simply point us to one of the most comprehensive titles that we see marking the person and work of Jesus, and for us to be absolutely overwhelmed by what he's done for us. Now, I can't. I can't produce that sense of being overwhelmed in you. I can't. 
I can't produce it in me. I can't produce it in you. So as I say that, I realize that I'm dependent upon God, his spirit to come and open our eyes together so that we, by his grace, feel the sense of being overwhelmed and able to celebrate his goodness and grace together and even as we depart in just a little while. That's the goal. I want us to be overwhelmed today. I want you, by the grace of God, to be overwhelmed. Not by the standards of this world, but overwhelmed in a refreshing way. In a refreshing way where you sense the gracious work of God in your life, understanding what he's done for you through Christ. You leave here today renewed in your joy and appreciation and gratitude for what he's done for us. During the season of Advent this year, we are looking at several Old Testament passages that really set the stage for who Christ is and what he came to accomplish. Several of these passages we're, we're looking at, you would, say, you would look at them and you would, you would not necessarily say, oh, there's Jesus. You, you, you wouldn't see that necessarily if you would... Just simply do a, a cursory reading of the passage, and, and uh, especially when we're coming to a passage dealing with Moses today. But what I think we need to be reminded of, especially in this series, is that, that the Old Testament, in many different ways, in direct prophecies and in, in setting forth foreshadows, sets the stage for who Christ is and what he would come to accomplish for us. Today we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 32. And in Exodus chapter 32, what we see here is a phenomenal illustration through Moses, through the people of God's encounter with God and and how Moses interceded for the people, stood in the place of the people and represented the people before a holy and righteous God. What we're going to see here is this, this really... This sermon today is really a lengthy illustration, ultimately getting us to the person and work of Jesus and what he came to do, specifically as our mediator. Before we read the passage, let me bring us up to speed as to where we are. For us to jump right into Exodus chapter 32 might be dangerous if we don't have the background. So let me preach Exodus 1 through 31 in two minutes. Exodus 1, we know a new Pharaoh arrives on the scene. God's people, people of Israel, are in Egypt. They're growing in number. A new Pharaoh arrives on the scene that did not know Joseph or Israel, and he puts Israel into slavery. Exodus 2, Moses, an Israelite, is born, and he's saved from the the edict to kill all the male children and is actually raised by Pharaoh's daughter. He later flees Egypt because he kills an Egyptian that was beating one of his fellow people. He flees for his life, and it's while he's away that the Lord in Exodus chapter 3 calls Moses to go back to Egypt to bring his people out of slavery and bondage. In Exodus chapter 4 through 12, we see how the story unfolds, which really results in the people of God leaving Egypt and heading to the promised land. All kinds of miracles take place there. All kinds of signs and wonders take place there. Miracles happen, and people, the people of God are delivered. In Exodus chapter 19, as they, leave Israel, or as they leave Egypt, making their way to the promised land, they arrive at a place called Sinai. 
Exodus 19. And so, once they arrive there, God calls Moses up onto the mountain so that he could meet with Moses and give him further instruction. Specifically, what he does is he gives Moses the law. That's Exodus 20 through 31. All of that, beginning in Exodus 20 with the Ten Commandments, and then he unpacks there through chapter 31, the giving of the law to Moses to be brought to the people of God. And so, as Moses has ascended to the mountain, he's there for 40 days. So just think about that from the perspective of the people. Your leader has just gone to a mountain You have no idea how long to expect him to be gone, and after a week, after two weeks, you're starting to get restless. Three weeks, where is he at? Four weeks, he must be dead. Five weeks, what's going on? We're going to have to take things into our own hands, and so we pick up there in Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together with Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of Egypt, the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears uh, of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their, land, uh, from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may, may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why? Why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham Isaac and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Genesis chapter 32 is quite a stunning picture, the stunning reality of what happened in the course of history as God's people were being brought out of the land of Egypt heading towards the promised land. And so what I want us to do today is, is I'm going to keep things as simple as possible. We're going to look at this passage. I want us to see two things this passage helps us see. Number one, it presents a dilemma that we all face. 
And number two, it provides the solution we all need but cannot produce on our own. Very simple. There's a dilemma here that all of us face, marked here by the people of God in Israel. And number two, it also provides a solution that we all need that we can't provide for ourselves. So let's walk through this together. Number one, let's consider the dilemma. The story characterizes a dilemma, a problem that has been present ever since Adam and Eve fell into sin and rebellion in the Garden of Eden. The dilemma has been expressed in many different ways throughout history, but perhaps J.I. Packer, great scholar and theologian, has summed it well in in the most simplest of terms when he said this. Here's Here's the problem that's on display in Exodus chapter 32. Here's the problem that we all face. Here it is. Men and women, men are opposed to God in their sin, and God is opposed to men in his holiness. That is the problem. That is the dilemma. We are opposed to God in our sin, and God in his holiness is opposed to us. This, in a nutshell, is the problem. Because God is good, because God is holy, because he is just, he will not tolerate our sin, and he will hold us accountable for our sin and our rebellion, and he will judge those who are guilty. Let's walk through this as we see it unfold here in this passage. We know the people of God had been living in Egypt, a very pagan, idolatrous place. The air they breathed, the sights they saw, the things they heard were all influenced by a culture of rampant idolatry. And as slaves in this nation, they certainly didn't have the status or ability to impact this culture to worship the true and living God. They had... They had their own heritage, their own history that God was sort of keeping loosely intact at this point. But, but they, this is what they were. They were slaves in this pagan land. And now, miraculously, they had been delivered out of this bondage. They had been brought out of that. They had been brought out of this oppression. And they had seen the glory and power of God on display. Can you imagine being there when the Red Sea just opened up and they walked on dry ground all the way through it? Can you imagine that? I mean, the horses and chariots and the Egyptians coming to slaughter you. And the sea just opens up miraculously by a miraculous work of God. And they go through and they are delivered. That They saw this. They experienced this. The manna that was provided from heaven for them to eat. We're not talking about 10 or 20 people. We're talking hundreds of thousands, if not more than that. At least 600,000, we're told, plus more. And now they find themselves at the base of a mountain which was covered in smoke. Moses, the leader, their fearless leader, had ascended it some 40 days prior not to return. So what do they do? Well, they remember all they had experienced by God's powerful work and they continue to patiently trust him. Is that what they do? No. They grow impatient. And they ask for Aaron to make them a god so that they can say, this is the god that brought us out of Egypt. Amazing, isn't it? Stunning. I think Mark Dever summarizes their situation well as he writes about their quick return to idolatry. This is what he says. He says, the situation you see described here is like committing adultery on your honeymoon. 
In the moment God most tenderly and carefully draws Israel to himself and lays out what it means to be his people, they betray him most clearly and sharply. Only 40 days, and they're ready to throw in the towel. They're ready to take things into their own hands. They make their own God. For us, it seems utterly ridiculous and foolish, but this is the reality, friends, of the human heart. You have the same, the very same nature that these people have had. You're made up of the same stuff that these people were made of. Yes, it seems completely ridiculous. It seems completely out of alignment. It seems com- completely foolish. But th- it just shows what a display, what a demonstration of how reckless our human depravity can be. Having seen the miraculous works of God on our behalf, for our good, only to turn our back yet again and break the covenant with him. Not only that, to go into idolatry. Friends, this is, this is pretty bad, about as bad as it can be. Not only do they create a God, a, a, a man-made idol, they treat it as if it represents God. And they're not just making up another one, they're saying, okay, Don't know what happened to Moses. We know God's leading us. Let's just make him. And they offer burnt offerings and they worship the calf as if it represents God. Friends, let this be a lesson to us when we find ourselves more and more confident in ourselves. We are all prone to error, prone to wonder, prone to leave the God we love. God's people had just been brought out of Egypt. God had just given Moses the law. And here they've broken the law before Moses comes down and explains it to them. So what does God do? Does he tell Moses, Moses, the people have corrupted themselves. Let's go down and and tell them they've done wrong. And teach them they need to do right. Is that what God says? Look at verses 7 through 10. The Lord said to Moses, go down for your people, for your people, Moses. Notice the play on words here. Whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. That word stiff-necked he uses four times between chapters 32 and 34. It's not a good thing to be referred to as a stiff-necked people from the the mouth of God. Just not a good thing. Now, verse 10, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. In God's perfect holiness and justice, he is about to respond to the error and sin of his own people by completely destroying them and starting over with Moses. Now, when you see that, you hear that, 
we see clearly here that God is radically opposed to sin, idolatry, to, to abandonment. He, he's opposed to this, and he will respond to those who rebel against him because he is good, because he is holy, because he is righteous. He's not just going to ignore wrongdoing. He will respond to it, and he will hold the disobedient to account. Again, when you consider this situation that the people of God have gotten themselves into, it's so reflective of what we see really throughout the entire Old Testament. Time and time again, God's people, saved, delivered, going right back into idolatry. Saved, delivered, going right back into to sin. And on and on we go. It's been the case since Genesis 3, and it will continue to be the case all the way through. Left to ourselves, it's a reminder, left to ourselves, we are foolish, we are rebellious and sinful, fully deserving God's justice. And so what we see here is a need for someone outside of ourselves, the people of God had a need for someone to come and help them. They needed a mediator. They needed one who would represent them to God and one who would stand on their behalf. Because without someone interceding on their behalf, the people of Israel would no longer exist after verse 10. The end of verse 10, judgment's about to come. And without any kind of miraculous happening outside of what's going on, the people will perish. But we know the story doesn't end in verse 10, praise God. Let's now consider the solution or the provision. We've seen the problem. The problem is that man, God's people in this case, are rebellious and sinful and God is holy and righteous and the two do not mix. The provision. Look at verses 11 through 14. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt? with great power and with a mighty hand. Notice actually he gives several arguments as to why God should not destroy them. First he says, why? Why does your wrath burn hot against your people that you have brought out of the land? It, if, if he were to destroy them, in fact it would invalidate the result of God's powerful deliverance that was on display all the way through most of Exodus. Then he goes on. He says, why? why should the Egyptians say with evil intent he did bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? It would, it would, give, it would give the opportunity for the Egyptians to find full delight in Israel's destruction. And three, look at the next verse, verse 13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. He reminds God of the promise that he made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. If God were to act in this way at this point, it would nullify the promise that he made specifically to Abraham. Notice, by the way, the humility of Moses. Moses could have said, fine with me, wipe them out, let's start afresh with me. But he doesn't. He points them back. He, he points back to Abraham. 
God remembered. As it, God hadn't forgotten. God's sovereign. He's in complete control of this whole situation. He's working through this situation to reveal his grace all the more. But he, uh, Moses points back to Abraham. And so Moses pleads on behalf of the people. He intercedes. Lord, please don't do this. And here are the reasons why I'm asking you not to do this. So in verse 14, we're told that God relents from the disaster he was about to bring upon the people. Because Moses was standing between God and the people, God did not fully destroy the people. He did bring a plague upon them later on in verse 35. There was consequence for their behavior. But they were not fully and finally destroyed. And had not Moses intervened, verse 10 would have happened. If you keep reading, we find that in chapter 34, the covenant is renewed. Moses receives two new tablets because when he came down the first time with the tablets, he broke them. And so he goes back up and receives a new set of tablets, and the covenant is renewed. And just read with me what, what we see there towards the uh, end of what's going on in, as the covenant's being renewed. It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, this is chapter 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go into the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Here's the simple overview of this narrative. God's people rebel. God promises swift judgment. Moses steps in and intercedes on behalf of the people. The people are spared and the covenant's renewed. God's people rebel. rebel. God's judgment is promised. Moses steps in and intercedes. The people are spared. Does that pattern ring a bell? Does that, does that picture Sound familiar? Think about that. Think about the pattern just for a moment and ask yourself what that sounds like. While Moses served as the mediator for the people of God here in this historical context, what's happening is it's, it's painting a picture, it's foreshadowing the need of a greater mediator who would not just stand for a nation, but for an entire people comprised of all the nations. One who could perfectly represent people before God. The need for a mediator would not just be displayed here, but it would be on continued display throughout the biblical record. The priesthood is an example of that because all of the human mediators that were brought about, guess what happened to them eventually? They died. So they would need another mediator, and he would mediate. He would stand before the people. He would go into the the temple or the tabernacle and represent the people before God, offering sacrifices on their behalf. On and on we go. And so what the Old Testament is doing, it's, it's showing that we are rebellious, God is holy, he will hold us account unless someone stands in between and represents us. 
So the Old Testament not only predicts with accuracy the coming of one who would fulfill this need perfectly, it foreshadows and anticipates the coming of this one all the way through. And so when you get to the New Testament, we find that Jesus himself is the answer to this great need. Jesus is the one who would ultimately come establish the new covenant. He is the seed, Genesis 3. We looked at that two weeks ago. He is that perfect substitute, Genesis 22. We looked at last week. And he is the perfect mediator that stands between God and man. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 The writer says, consequently, he, speaking about Christ, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 5, for there is one God and there is one mediator, one, between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Who is that? Jesus Christ, the righteous. Remember the dilemma. Remember the problem. You have sinful humanity and a holy God. How in the world can we be reconciled? Well, with man it's absolutely impossible. You can't be reconciled. And yet people are trying their best every single day to reconcile themselves to God. Maybe if I'm just kind enough, maybe if I act like a Christian hard enough, maybe if I just do this and do that, maybe somehow God will be pleased with me. And, and, and he won't see me, surely he doesn't see me like he would some mass murderer or, or some evil person throughout history surely I would stand out surely God would would be happy enough to not condemn me happy with me because the problem is that no matter how hard you and I try we could never reconcile ourselves to God on our own you you can't do it it is humanly impossible but with God all things are possible Right? Humanly impossible. With God, all things are possible. We read passages like I read earlier in our service. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. God had a plan that he executed for our sake. Think about this. We have to have a mediator that represents us. A mediator is a person that steps into a situation that is supposed to represent both parties that are in conflict with each other. They're supposed to represent both parties equally. That's what mediation's about. They're a neutral person representing both parties equally to bring about reconciliation. Now, this work of mediation is not radically different. It's quite different from the kind of mediation we see going on today. Because typically the mediation we see going on today is trying to reconcile two parties that are in opposition to each other and both in some way are at fault. This is not the case here. God is not at fault. He is holy. He is perfect. He is blameless. He is pure. He is righteous. He is good. We are sinful. We are rebellious. We are selfish. We are full of pride. We want our own way. We want to do our own thing and we want to abandon God's law. And 
there is a breach, there is a problem, there is, therein lies the dilemma. This is why, friends, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ is absolutely essential. Jesus is the only one who represents both parties equally. He's the only one that can represent God in his holiness, and he's the only one that can represent man because he lived as a man, and he died as a man, and he was raised as a man. He's the only one that could fulfill this role. Only Jesus could represent man to God and God to man. In Christ, we have the perfect mediator that we need. Great scholar Anselm, way back in the ages of church history, once said it this way, the debt was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it. There's the hostility that God rightly has towards sinners. Listen. The holy hostility that God justly, rightly has towards those who have rebelled against him. That holy hostility has been perfectly appeased in the death of his own son. Not only has Christ Not only is Christ our mediator, not only is he the one that stands between us and God and represents us to God, he died for us. To reconcile us to God. We no longer stand condemned. Because of what Christ has done. Because of how Christ represents us to God. And on that great and final day. When you stand. If I'm talking to you as a Christian right now. If you have trusted and put your hope in Christ. When you stand on that day before God. And you have to give an account. Listen. You are going to stand there. To give accounts. As you. And on that day, as a Christian, you're not going to have to cower. You're not going to have to to somehow say, Lord, I hope I get in. Because your mediator will be there too. Your mediator will be standing there representing you. Because he has covered you in his righteousness and cleansed you by his blood. And on that great and final day when you are standing before a holy God, that dilemma is resolved because your mediator is present. Your mediator has provided everything you need to be reconciled with God. You may be here today and you you think, well, that sounds great. You realize you're a sinner like the rest of us. It's what we are. We're, we're, we're fallen. We're sinful. We all have fallen short of God's glory. Maybe you realize that this morning. And you realize that, that the dilemma is still present in your own heart. You realize that were you to meet God right now, all would not be well with you. But friend, the good news is, is that Jesus came into the world, God God becoming flesh, Son of God coming into the world to live a life that we all should have lived, a life of absolute perfection and righteousness. And yet, he gave himself upon a cross to shed his blood 
He shed His blood for your sin. So that you could be rescued. So that you could be redeemed. So that you could be grafted in. So you could be gathered in, adopted into His family. Friend, if you would just simply realize your own sin and your own inadequacy and your own inability to save yourself and place your full hope and trust in Christ, you will have a mediator. You will have a redeemer. You will be cleansed of all sin, past, present, and future, and you will stand on that great and final day not cowering but confident because of Christ, because of what He's done for you. Friend, simply quit looking to the things of this world to find hope, place your hope in Jesus, the perfect, righteous one who is the mediator for sinners. Look to him and find life. Look to him and find joy. Look to him and find rescue. Friends, we all face this dilemma. We all face this dilemma. And the good news about Christmas is that God has provided a way for this dilemma to be gone. You don't have to live with this burden. You don't have to live with this this reality and this problem that, that exists for all people. Rather, friend, you can live with hope by placing your trust in the perfect mediator, Jesus Christ. Just as Moses stood between God and the people, Jesus the greater and better Moses, as Hebrews puts it, stands between us and God. And what better news could you be given? I can't think of any. I can't think of any better news to hear than that, that there is one who came and lived and died and was raised again on behalf of people just like you. And that there is this one who even now at the right hand of the Father is interceding for those who have placed their hope in Him. There is a problem. There is a dilemma. But God has not just planned for there to be a solution. He has provided the solution Himself. Praise His name for what He has given through Jesus Christ. Praise God that we can stand before Him He's holy, he's pure, he's blameless, he's righteous, he's good, he's just, he's worthy of everlasting praise. And we, as sinners, can stand before him complete and confident because there is one who stands between us. And he has saved us. Praise his name. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks this morning for what you have done for us. We thank you, Lord. We do not have to be condemned. Lord, we take comfort in that great verse that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is a present truth and certainly it is a future promise. Lord, my prayer this morning is simple. For those of us who are in this room who have placed faith in Christ, we knew long ago, or maybe it wasn't so long ago, that we were sinners separated from a holy God, that we were in a great dilemma, that we had a great problem, and that that problem 
could not be resolved in any other way except by trusting in Christ. Father, for those of whom that is true in this room, my prayer is that we would be refreshingly overwhelmed by a sense of your provision in our life. God, that we would not leave here today burdened by the things of this world as hard as they can often be, as significant as they often can be. But God, would you help us to realize that no matter what problems we face, our greatest problem was the fact that we are sinners that will have to give account before a holy God. And that has been resolved. Lord, that has been resolved through Christ. Lord, I pray that we would find joy in that, that we would find a sense of deep and lasting gratitude in you. God, thank you. Thank you for what you have given us. Lord, may our lives be marked with joy and gratefulness. May our lives be lived out in faith and in, desi- in devotion to you. Father, maybe there's someone in this room, maybe several in this room, that they realize, Lord, they, they still live under the burden of the problem, of the dilemma. God, would you right now, would you release them from that burden? Would you release them from that dilemma, Lord, by drawing their full confidence away from themselves and allowing them to place their confidence through faith in Jesus Christ? Lord, right now, would you draw people to yourself in that way? Would you relieve burdens? Would you relieve weights right now of those who are trying to, to earn their way into your presence. Lord, they're trying to be their own mediator. Father, help them to realize they're lousy at that because we're all lousy at that. We could never represent ourselves to you in the way that you deserve and demand. So Lord, would you, would you allow many to be drawn to you? God, would you bring into hearts and lives at this moment True saving faith. Father, I pray that no one would even leave here today without considering these these realities. God, would you stir our hearts? Would you lead us to respond today, Lord, in faith, in joy? And God, would you overwhelm us God, would you help us to be overwhelmed in a godly way that we would give you glory and praise all the days of our life for what you've done for us. Lord, would you help us to realize, help us to realize that we have one who stands and who intercedes. He stands as our advocate even now as we speak. God, thank you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.